0: This morning, we're going to continue in our series in the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, when we talk about Christ and the law, it's probably one of the most confused and misunderstood uh, doctrines of the church. How does Christ and the law fit together? Uh, what about Moses now that, that, that Christ has come? So before we get into our passage, I want to just talk a little bit about the theological climate of the time. Now, I think uh, many times when we read the New Testament, we forget that they didn't have the New Testament. When Jesus taught and his disciples taught, they were teaching from our Old Testament. The Old Testament was the Bible of the apostles. So the law and the prophets proclaimed the coming of Christ, prophesied his reign, his kingdom, his gospel message. And they were a biblically proficient people. Very much unlike us, by the time that a young Hebrew child was about five or six, they probably had the law the, the Torah memorized. Uh, it was used in all facets of their life, and in every book of the Old Testament, there is a foreshadowing and a looking forward to an anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah who is to come. So our Old Testament and New Testament are not disconnected, but they are one unfolding revelation of God and 2nd Corinthians 1st 20 tells us that all the promises of God find their yes in him which is Christ that is why it is through him Christ that we utter our amen to God for his glory all the promises of scripture are foretold about Christ and he came to fulfill them and that's what we're going to see this morning so we have that then the other side, there's about 400 years between when the Old Testament was written and the New Testament. And in between that time, uh, Israel was still in their dispersion. They were under uh, Greek and then Roman rule. And there arose this elite uh, religious class of Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees in this intertestamental period wanted to reclaim the power that they thought uh, Israel and, and Jerusalem should be as the seat of worship of the Most High God. But they did it in a way of trying to moralistically uh, change their society. So they not only took the law of the Old Testament that was for Israel, but they added their own commandments to the law, adding this additional burden to the people. Like when we see in Luke 18 uh, between the Pharisee and the uh, tax collector, he says that that he fast twice a week. There was no uh, Old Testament command to fast twice a week. But the Pharisees added these laws, these extra burdens to make themselves seem high and moral. Uh, They were our legalists today and they they followed a religion of moralism. You know, the 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 Pharisee word, it it means separatists. And um, you know they were more concerned with separating themselves to look holy and to please others than to please God. They were more concerned with their outward rituals than the condition of their heart. And they weren't preaching a gospel to the heart. They weren't preaching the Shema, the the, the heart of the Old Testament. Um, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. They were preaching a religion of moralistic tendencies to keep face before man. Um, and that keeps people outwardly moral for a while until the peer pressure wears off until the facade breaks down. And remember that Paul was a Pharisee. And the outpouring of this Phariseeism is that if you're holding up this false kingdom, if you're holding up this, this false moral religion and someone threatens it, you have to take them out. Because your religion can't stand on its own. And so Paul persecuting Christians is the outpouring of that moralism. You must suppress anyone who challenges what you are proclaiming. And that's the mark of any corrupt system. Any corrupt religion is you have to silence anyone who opposes you. You know, the great thing I want you to know this morning and every morning is that when we proclaim the gospel here. Our truth stands on its own. We don't need to silence any opposition. We just declare God's word and let it do its work. We're not afraid of those who may challenge what we think because we know we have the infallible, unchanging word of God. But the sad truth is that moralism exists today. That moralism is probably is the most popular gospel in all of the world, and it's the most popular gospel in many churches. Uh, because uh, many times Christians define themselves by their moral character, by their political party, uh, by their outward image, by their personal causes. Many Christians are more excited about outward circumstances than they are about the gospel of Christ. And they are they're more excited about circumstantial uh, attributes of our lives. than the truth that we are to love the Lord, our God, with our heart, soul, mind and strength and our neighbors, ourselves. And unless you repent and believe on Jesus Christ, you can't be saved. Dressing a certain way is not going to save you. Voting a certain way is not going to save you. Acting a certain way is not going to save you. It is only by that grace alone that we sang about earlier. So I want to talk a little bit in this introduction about moralism. It is our American folk religion. I mean, we are moralistic. You know, we are raised to live by a moral standard. And we assume that if we do these moral things, our parents will be pleased, our teachers will be pleased, our bosses will be pleased. And then by extension, God will be pleased. I read this great article by Al Mohler, and if you've ever read Al Mohler, uh he's probably one of the most brilliant Christians alive today, probably the most brilliant people in the country. He's a great read, um, but it can be a, a deep read. So I've kind of condensed this this article. Uh, I'm going to read through portions of it. I'm going to bring several quotes to attention on the, the, the screen, and I want you to kind of get this picture of of moralism and see if it sounds familiar and see if you've seen it. In your own church, in your own life, it's important for us to identify before we get into our passage this morning. So he says, should be up on the screen, he says, the basic structure of moralism comes down to this, the belief that the gospel can be reduced to improvements in behavior. Sadly, this false gospel is particularly attractive to those who believe themselves to be evangelicals motivated by a biblical impulse. Far too many believers in their churches succumb to the logic of moralism and reduce the gospel to a message of moral improvement. He goes on to say, In other words, we communicate to lost persons the message that God desires for them and demands of them is to get their lives straight. In one sense, we are born moralists. Created in God's image, we have been given the moral capacity of conscience. Our conscience communicates our sinfulness. Add to this fact that the process of parenting and child rearing tends to inculcate the moralism from our earliest years. Very quickly, quickly we learn that our parents are concerned with our behavior. Well-behaved children are rewarded with parental approval, while misbehavior brings parental sanction. This message is reinforced by other authorities in young lives and pervades the culture at large. The theological temptation of moralism is one many Christians and churches find difficult to resist. The danger is that the church will communicate by both direct and indirect means that which God expects of fallen humanity is moral improvement. In doing so, the church subverts the gospel and communicates a false gospel to a fallen world. But, he continues, just as parents rightly teach their children to obey moral instruction the church also bears responsibility to teach its own moral commands, to teach its own moral commands of God and to bear witness to the larger society of what God has declared to be right and good for his human creatures. But these impulses, right and necessary as they are, are not the gospel. Indeed, One of the most insidious false gospels is a moralism that promises the favor of God and the satisfaction of God's righteousness to sinners if they will only behave and commit themselves to moral improvement. Some of you are confused because you thought that was the gospel. Most of my life I thought that was the gospel. I thought that's what I had to respond to, this outward moral improvement. God's moral law is a good thing and Christ is going to tell us that in a, a moment. But it is not the path to salvation. It is not the gospel. It is not where we are justified before God. Because it is only in Christ's righteousness and his character, not our own, that we are justified. So let's pray. Let's get into our text this morning. Heavenly Father, I just pray that this time together uh, would be insightful and eye-opening for us. At the very least, to be a reminder of who we are and who you are. The truth That the gospel is not something we can ever earn because we're not capable of it. But the gospel is the greatest gift we could ever receive. The gift of unmerited favor. Grace to people who don't deserve it. That the law is there to remind us of our sin and to draw us and have us run to Christ. And this morning, as we talk about this law and gospel and Christ and the law, that it would uh, be clear to us. And that my own uh, inability to, to explain this and even comprehend the depths of it would not get in the way of what you want to teach your people this morning. So, Lord, I just pray in Jesus' name that your Holy Spirit would work through me and in those here this morning to open our eyes and to rest our hearts on you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So if you would, turn to Matthew chapter 5 for me. We're going to pick up uh, where we left off in verse 17 of chapter 5. I'm going to read verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, You will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Amen. So it is so important that you get this. These doctrines determine how we see Christ and how we see Scripture. I want you to know a little bit about Matthew and his purpose in writing the gospel. Matthew was like Paul. He was a Jew of Jews. He was a tax collector, one of Jesus' 12 disciples. And he knew the prophecies well. He knew the Jewish law well. He knew the culture of the time. Matthew, more than any, go- than any of the other Gospels, mentions the law and the prophets over and over and over again. This is the Hebrew message to the Hebrew people. And then to go on to all the world, that the Christ that was prophesied that is to come is in our midst. The kingdom of heaven has come to earth. That is Matthew's message. And up to this point in the Beatitudes, And then we see in the salt and light, Jesus is setting the foundation for the message that is to continue. For the rest of the the, the sermon, we need to know who this sermon is addressed to. The Beatitudes are describing the people who will dwell in that kingdom. The salt and light are those who have been transformed by the gospel of grace. The rest of this message applies to them. And so when Jesus begins here talking about the law and the prophets, he's going to continue preaching through the law and the prophets in the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. What Christ does and what we should always do in the church is he reforms the church back to God's word. Because in the climate of his time, the Pharisees lived on their morals. And what the Reformations and the Awakenings and every Reformation that ever happens in a church is always back to God's word. When we add our own requirements to the gospel We need to be reminded to go back to the unchanging truth of who God is and who we are before him. That is what reformation means. That is what Jesus is doing here. You've heard all these other things. Let me tell you what was proclaimed about me. Let me tell you what the law really says. The law is not outward, it is inward. So when Jesus says, don't think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets, but come to fulfill it. I mean, how amazing is that? I mean, how often do we sit back and think that the law that I could never fulfill on my own, the moral requirement I could never live up to, Christ did for me. I mean, do we sit and rest in the magnitude of that? That one sin separates me from God. And all of my sins create this chasm between me and God that I could never stretch. But Christ did that perfectly. Fulfilled the requirements of the law. I mean, this word abolish, it means to break down or to unharness. And the word fulfill means to fill up full. So Jesus saying, I'm not unharnessing the law. I'm filling it up. I am completing its requirements i am showing you its fullness how the law was intended to be in myself one of probably the most famous passages in all of scripture and you know matthew 22 the greatest commandment which we know well i've said several times this morning uh, matthew 23 or excuse me 22 37 through through 40 we can quote this in our sleep a lot of us But there's an interesting line at the end that we don't necessarily always read. Matthew 22, 37 says, And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We stop there, right? But Jesus doesn't. On these two commands depend all the law and the prophets. That phrase that Matthew uses over and over again, it's, it's a, a summary. It's another term for our Old Testament. The law, the first five books of the Bible and the prophets to the Jews, to the, the, the Hebrews. Basically, everyone after Moses was a prophet. They were um, they were proclaiming something that was coming ahead. The Hebrew scriptures actually had three designations. Uh, the original Hebrew Bible and the Hebrew Bible that scholars use now uh, does not have the same order that our that our Bible does. Uh, When Jesus talks about in Luke 24, he was teaching them all that was taught about him in the law, the prophets and the Psalms. Those are the, uh, the, the divisions in the Hebrew Bible, the law, the first five books of the Bible, the prophets. The former and the latter, uh, starting with Joshua and Judges and Samuel and, and, and Kings, the they consider those prophets, the history books are prophets, and the writings came last. The Hebrew Old Testament actually finishes with Chronicles. Um, it's a whole another discussion, but that's the Hebrew order, the law, the prophets, and the writings. In the writings falls the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Song of Solomon, the Ecclesiastes, those those uh, great hymns and, and um, moral imperatives for the Christian life. Remember, I've told you so many times that the indicative, what is comes before the imperative, what we must do with it. So the Hebrew scriptures assumed that we had what is first. We knew the law. We knew the prophets. Then we can understand the writings. You can't understand Proverbs without understanding the law. You can't proclaim God and sing of Him who He is in Psalms until you know the creation, the fall, and the law and the requirements that God had for His people. You must understand the law and the prophets before you understand the writings. When Jesus declared that to His disciples on the road to Emmaus, it would have sounded something like that. He would have walked them through the Hebrew Bible and He would have proclaimed who He was in every book, in every story, in every example. This was the point you to me. Hebrews 10 gives us this great picture of the law and the sacrificial system. Uh, I'm not going to get into it, but if you want to read more about how that is lived out in Christ, Hebrews 10 goes into great detail about the law that is that was necessary then and is not necessary now if we are in Christ, but it's still upheld if you are not in Christ. Because the law has several purposes and the scripture gives us a lot of pictures of, about the law and the purpose of the law. The law acts as a mirror. The law shows us our sin. We look at it and we see our brokenness and our depravity before God, but the law cannot save us. Your mirror cannot wash the dirt off your face. The gospel, the good news of who Jesus Christ is, the living waters will rinse that off us. And throughout our life, the law continues to act as a mirror. We are reminded that I've fallen short. I've offended my God. Paul says that the law acts like a schoolmaster. And we saw that in, in Galatians. It is therefore a time to teach us. Just like when children are young, they need, to, they need boundaries. They need perimeters. They need to be told when to wake up, when to brush their teeth, when to go to sleep, what not to eat. What strangers not to talk to, how not to cross the road. I mean, that's what God was doing with this young nation of Israel. He needed uh, them to understand that they weren't to look like the rest of the world. They weren't to look like the Canaanites, the pagans. These are my parameters for you for my child who is Israel. But when the child grows up, when it comes to fulfillment, and that child is an adult, Christ comes. And Christ in himself fulfilled those Requirements and gives us our usherance into the world with this freedom, knowing the law has its purpose and the moral commands of God are still good. You know, the law has its moral requirements, uh, the Ten Commandments, the things that are rooted in the character of God. They never change. It will never be okay to kill. Jesus lived perfectly. Jesus didn't murder anyone, never hated anyone in his heart, because we hate people. Every time I drive somewhere, I wish someone dead, and then I have to repent of it. (laughs) The law is rooted in God's moral character. We should always put God ahead of everything else. We should never have idols in our lives. We should always honor our parents. That moral law never changes. Uh, But there was a judicial system Because Israel had to have uh, governing laws. Before they demanded a king, God said, my laws are going to govern you. And those were for a people in a time who were in a land that was not their own. And they were to be governed by those laws. And then there was the process for sin. If you were to sin, you would have to offer a sacrifice or an offering for that sin as an atonement, as a covering. A price needed to be paid when you offended God. And that is the most important thing that Jesus fulfilled. Because there's a reason we don't have an altar anymore. There's a reason we don't sacrifice lambs and sheep. Because when Christ died for one of our sins, he died for all of them. And that sacrificial system, when Jesus says that God requires mercy and not sacrifice, he understands that now that he's come and when he goes to the cross that he will usher in a gospel of mercy no longer requires a sacrifice for sin, but a change of heart and how we approach God and how we approach others. Uh, Romans 8 is a couple great verses on this. I want to flip to a few passages. So if you can get there quickly, follow with me. Keep your thumb in Matthew 5. If you can't, I'll read them slowly. But Romans 8, we read just verses 2 through 4. Uh, and Paul explains this pretty well, as he he usually does. And Paul explains the law quite often. That was one of Paul's favorite topics, is the law and the gospel, because he understood the law. So Romans 8, verses 2 through 4. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin... He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He fulfilled it. He dwells in us. It's fulfilled within us. Not because we fulfilled it. I'm just thinking about this this week, that once I, once I finish and I graduate and I have that piece of paper on the, on the wall, that's about all it is is a piece of paper. When I have that on the wall, the, the requirements of my professors' grades no longer have any hold over me. Uh, I have now graduated, and they don't have any bearing on my life anymore. I was thinking, yeah, that's, that's kind of how Christ fulfilled the law. I said, no, 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 that isn't enough. It's like someone went through all of my classes sat through the good lectures and the boring ones, read the good books and not the boring books, on my behalf, got straight A's, and now I reap the benefit. Christ fulfilled what we couldn't. And we get all the blessings that come along with it. I love that. So that is the law. The prophets. The second part of this verse back here in um, Matthew chapter 5, he has fulfilled the law and the prophets. So We got the law, hopefully. If you don't, see me after, we'll we'll talk more. The prophets. God spoke into his people through the Holy Spirit to declare his son was coming. Every prophet from Joshua to Zechariah, the way Jesus says it, they killed all the prophets from Abel to Zechariah, the last prophet to die in the book of Chronicles. They were looking forward to the anointed one to come. God's kingdom being ushered in. Those prophets spoke about Christ. He fulfilled at least 50 specific prophecies and another 300 plus uh, general prophecies about the state of his kingdom that is to come. And we will see the perfect fulfillment of all those when he comes again. The prophets, they were God's mouthpieces before the people. Repent and believe, here are your sins. The righteous one is coming. He's going to judge everyone. You want to stand with the righteous and not the wicked. Those religious moralists, the legalists, they killed the prophets. They killed all the workers in the vineyard, and then they killed the vineyard owner's son. A lot of you guys know I have a football ministry, and we play every Saturday morning. played yesterday. It was too hot. It's a stupid thing to do, but I had a good time. We're going through John chapter 7. And I asked them a question. We're talking about the Pharisees wanting to kill Jesus. So I asked them a question. How do you think Jesus would be received today? Most people astutely said he'd probably be received the same way. They would would hate him and kill him. But a couple people couldn't understand. They were saying, well, we know who he is now. We have this this, uh, hindsight. If you think Jesus would come into a world that that hates him and wants to be their own God and loves their own moral requirements, that they would just embrace him and they're going to embrace you because you embrace Christ. They're going to do the same thing they did to the prophets and to him. How, what a contrary world we live in. We walk as people who know the truth of who Christ is. We know the full revelation of scripture, but yet the world around us is blinded. They don't know the words of the prophets. The Jews themselves would memorize these prophets had no idea that the Christ, the Son of God, was standing in their midst. And for their purpose, he says in verse 18, For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Like we saw, he fulfilled the requirements of the law morally, sacrificially. But if you want to choose to live by the law and your own moral standard, it's going to stand until Christ comes again. And that penalty for sin will be paid by you or by Christ. So the law still stands for everyone who is under the law, for everyone who chooses to try to get by on their own moral abilities. That's what Jesus is telling us here. And he's also holding up the authority of Scripture. I am the Word. I am the incarnate Word. My words do not pass away. My Word is true, and it stands until I've fulfilled it, until I fulfill it completely in my second coming. What's important for us to understand is that when Christ died on the cross, if you trust in Him for your salvation, if you repent and turn to Him, as the only name in heaven and earth you can be saved, then sin's dominance in your life died with him, died in us. But We are still in a fallen world, and sin's influence in our lives continues. Because when we sin, we still break the law. Thank God, thank God for sending his son that we are no longer punished according to that law. The law, the moral requirements still stand because they're rooted in God's character. And we sin and we repent, we sin and we repent, we turn to Christ, we turn from the world. It's this process that we go through. And every time we do that, our faith is increased. Our faith is strengthened like the gold in the fire where the heat is turned up. Every time we turn from the world and turn to Christ, we begin to look more and more like him. The beautiful news of the gospel is that he fulfills the requirements of the law. The things that the prophet spoke about were true. They were fulfilled perfectly in Christ. He fulfills those for those who trust in him. So once we get that set in our foundation, what does verse 19 tell us? Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What? Relaxes one of the least of the commandments and teaches others to do the same thing? It's one of those things, I'll be honest with you, I was kind of confused this this week going through this. Well, Which ones are the least and which ones do we relax? And when have I been guilty of that? Because I'm sure I have. But what's more important, I think, is the second half of this verse. It's when Jesus says, whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. The order is important here. Because Jesus recognizes that you can't teach something you don't know yourself. Those who do them and teach them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. We must know the law of God first. And Jesus said, you will know, they will know that you are my disciples if you keep my commandments. And if you love one another. We must know God's word. We must be rooted in it every day. We must know the truth. And we must teach others. Because there are rewards for that. The Bible and Jesus talks about many different places about rewards in heaven and there, some being greater and lesser in heaven. It's kind of weird for us to think about. There are rewards in heaven for those who are faithful. There are rewards for those who teach and admonish in the Lord. And those who raise up disciples and, and love well. Uh, we don't know what that looks like, um, but it's promised to us. That Jesus is more concerned with those who apply the law to their lives first. The truth of the gospel to themselves before others. Pulling the plank out of our eye before picking at the speck in our brothers. I love reading the Puritans. You guys know this. And there's this great saying that they use often. like You should never preach anything that you have not applied in your own life first. And, man, that is a sobering reminder every week that I come up here. I better be very careful in what I tell you guys you should be doing because not only are there great rewards for those who teach, but there is a great penalty for those who lessen these commandments and for our own comfort weaken the gospel. There must be personal application before public instruction. Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 23, verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do, for they preach, but do not practice. That old saying of practice what you preach, it comes from, from this. They knew how to observe the law. They couldn't follow it themselves. Their hearts were dead. So I think this needs to be addressed too. So we've got the moralistic side, the people who uh, want us to be moral on the outside and add all these laws and commands. You need to look and act and think and A certain way in order to be a Christian. There's the other side of that too. There's movement in our culture. It's existed in different forms over the years. But it's called the hyper grace movement or modern grace movement. And basically what it says is because grace exists that the law no longer applies. The moral commands no longer apply. So I can do whatever I want. I mean there are some heinous things going on in churches in the name of free grace. I can drink as much as I want. I can do all these things that I want to. I can sin over and over and over again. And it's okay because there's, there's grace. The opposite of moralism is called antinomianism. It's just Greek for anti without namas law. So without any law, without any boundaries, without any requirements for God's people, I can do whatever I want. I can go on sinning because grace abounds. That is as much a distortion as moralism is. We need to be careful of either of those extremes. The extreme grace or the extreme law, both of which does not depend on Christ. The focus is ourself, either our moral standard or our perceived moral freedom. And that's exactly what Jesus is getting at here as he closes this little section in verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Righteousness in the law. Imagine how this sounded to the Jews of the day. Wait, I have to be more righteous than those righteous guys? The guys who are fasting in the middle of the street? The guys who are playing trumpets when when they give away things to the poor? Like, I have to be more righteous than them? Well, who could be saved? Jesus is getting people to understand, that's the point, that that righteousness will never save you. You could do everything according to the letter of the law. You are tithing on your spices. You are going and buying salt and pepper and sanctioning off 10% of that. They were tithing on their spices and it still wasn't enough. But what Jesus knew and his disciples would soon know is that when your heart is transformed by the gospel, out of that heart comes a righteousness that the Pharisees can never live up to. And we can't be saved on our own and our righteousness must come from Christ. It can't come from the law. And those who are transformed by grace will do greater works than the Pharisees. They are more righteous than the Pharisees. Because once Christ does transform us, we will exceed what they do far and away. Because it will be pleasing to God. And it will come from a heart that loves the Lord fully. And loves one another because he loved us. Let's be honest. One of the problems in the church today is that people see the church as this false moralistic standard that we've perpetuated. You have to get it together before you can come to church. I can't go into church because I'd get struck by lightning, or i got to clean myself up first. We, Christians, have perpetuated that. We have told people you need to bandage yourself up before you go to the hospital. You need to get morally right, and you do all these things before you can come before God. No, we stand before God like the tax collector, beating (coughs) our chest. God, how have you had mercy on me, a sinner? The law will be upheld, either by Christ or by you. If Christ does, then we get to live like who we are, sons of the Father, brothers of the law keeper. When you are adopted into a family, you begin to act and speak and look like that family. You see someone who adopts a child internationally, They become part of that family. They speak like that family. They dress like that family. They think like that family. They are a part of that family. When we've been bought with a price and brought into Christ's family, we begin to look and act like him. We love his law like David. We meditate on it day and night because it's good, it's righteous, it's rooted in our God. And very importantly, as Jesus finishes up his Sermon on the Mount, Something we call the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. But something interesting follows that. For this is the law and the prophets. That theme continues. So how do we conclude this morning? That the gospel is not adherence to moralism or some kind of law for salvation. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, The perfect, sinless one came to earth, born of a virgin, walking for 33 years without sin, without stumbling, tempted in all ways, but living perfectly. Died the death for sin that we were supposed to die. Was raised again so we could be raised up with him. Ascended on high to sit at the right hand of the Father so we one day will ascend on high. That is the gospel. In Ephesians chapter 2, we had a great conversation this week. Uh, we're going to continue and finish Ephesians chapter two, but I want to read this. I mean, this is one of the most important passages that describes the gospel. Ephesians chapter two, eight through ten. We're going to close after this. I might have one or two comments. But we'll close after that. <laughs> For by grace you have been saved through faith, and is not of your own doing; it is a gift from God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For this is the whole purpose here. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand. Good works for God's glory. The Pharisees had no need to repent or trust in Christ, because they were their own righteousness. Are you your own righteousness, or is Christ your righteousness? Are you trusting and upholding the law or your own moral standard? Or are you trusting in the one who upheld the law perfectly? It's a question we all must ask.